Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. All right, open your Bibles, please, to the book of Song of Solomon. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a paperback Bible underneath uh, one of the chairs nearby in front of you, and it is on page 323 of the paperback Bibles, Song of Solomon. Uh, I wonder if I asked you what your favorite love song is, what you would say, your favorite love song. Uh, Married couples might have a a song that they call their song, our song, a song that you kind of connected with when you met and were courting each other. It's been estimated that 100 million love songs have been recorded. 100 million love songs shows how much we tend to love love songs. There's all kinds of love songs, aren't there? There are love songs that are uh, kind of an expression of infatuation, you know, kind of an innocent crush like the Beatles sang, I want to hold your hand way back in 1964. There are um, love songs that are an expression of devotion and faithfulness like the song A Thousand Years by Christina Perry. There, of course, are breakup songs, lots of breakup songs, particularly in country and western music. Um, but um, a pretty funny and catchy song by Taylor Swift called We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together. Classic breakup song. Um, there are also makeup songs, songs of coming back together, something like Sorry Seems to Be the Hardest Word by Elton John, expression of uh, forgiveness and receiving of confession of wrongdoing. There's even songs about love songs like Silly Love Songs by Paul McCartney, expressing his love for love songs. And of course there are plenty of songs that are fairly explicit in a sensual way, and I won't name any of those for you this morning, but um, they are certainly numerous. Why are these songs so popular? Why do we love them so much? And I think the answer is fairly obvious. It's because they tend to capture this universal human experience of falling in love with somebody. And probably just about everybody here, whether you're married or not, has experienced that, falling in love. One writer said that the love song was, uh, began, or the whole kind of genre began back in 8th century Spain, but together here today we know that the beginning of the love song predated that by many centuries because we have a love song in our Bibles, and that love song is called the Song of Solomon, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going through the Bible here in this sermon series called Route 66, 66 books in the Bible, so we're going through the whole Bible, one sermon per Bible book from Genesis to Revelation, and so here we are at the Song of Solomon. You knew we were going to get there eventually, right? And so here we are, the last of the wisdom books in the Bible. We'll be starting the prophets next Sunday. Uh, The Song of Solomon, we believe, written by Solomon. No surprise there. Uh, Although that has been disputed, it's not absolutely certain. There are some questions raised. If you look at just the very first verse of chapter 1, it says the Song of Songs, another title of this book, which is Solomon's, it says. So it could mean that it was written by Solomon. It also might mean that this was written for Solomon or on his 
behalf. Some also point out that the experience that is described here in the Song of Solomon doesn't exactly fit Solomon's life because you might remember that Solomon had 700 wives. He was a polygamist and that's not what's reflected here in the Song of Solomon. So some say, how could Solomon have written this? It could be, and again there's differences of opinion on this, but it could be that this is Solomon writing this book near the end of his life as he has reflected upon his experiences with 700 women, and what he is affirming here for us is that the ideal that God set forth in the Garden of Eden, one man and one woman, is the way to do it. That that is the superior way for men and women to relate together in a loving way. Started back in the Garden of Eden. So perhaps Solomon is just reflecting on his ways as he did in the book of Ecclesiastes in affirming God's ideal at the beginning of time. Author, Solomon, maybe. If it was Solomon, written in the 900s BC, so almost a thousand years before Jesus, themes very clear here in this book, uh, love, marriage, and intimacy. Significant events, I'm saying none, just because this isn't really describing any significant events. I think we have real people here, but because it's a song, we're not really considering any specific historical events that the book depicts. So the Song of Solomon, here's what we're going to do. It's eight chapters. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. So we'll just kind of start the book and get a feel for it and look at the first chapter and the first seven verses of chapter two. So that's what I'm going to read for us now. If you're able to stand, please do so. I'll read chapter one, verse one through chapter two, verse seven. Okay. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where your pasture, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O oh, most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. 
The beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. God, would you please, by your spirit, open our eyes and our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Song of Solomon. Surprising book, not one that you would expect in our Bible, maybe. Some language that is uh, fairly explicit, but this is a song that is depicting for us the uh, goodness of love between a man and a woman. And so we're, we're going to take apart these first few verses and see what it says. And the, the first thing I want to show you is what I've just mentioned here that this book is showing us, which is the, the basic goodness of desire. And by desire, I, I mean the desire for sexual intimacy. That's the kind of desire that is at work here in this book. Now, you've noticed here, I probably should have read the little headings, but I didn't. You'll see how it's organized um, under um, these little titles, she and he, and then there are others. These others are kind of onlookers. The phrases under others act as kind of a chorus. So again, remember, this is a song. So these others are chiming in, and what we have is kind of a conversation going back and forth here between uh, the woman and the man. And so it begins with the words of this woman. You see right before verse 2, it says, she. And I don't think it's hard for us to see that this is a woman who is filled with desire for her man. Verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Your love is better than wine. What does wine do? Wine makes us drunk, right? What she's saying is, I am drunk with love and desire. I am intoxicated by this man. He, uh, she talks about these anointing oils in verse 2. They are fragrant. This is a man who knows how to make himself smell good. He's got some perfume on, and she smells this, and this leads to her arousal, and she is expressing here her desire for her man. This is all really summed up here in verse 5, chapter 2. I am sick with love. <laughs> she is just overcome with passionate desire. Now, when I say that, I, you probably some of you are thinking, I can't believe I'm in church and I'm hearing this. Uh, again, some of you might not even know that this song is in the Bible. This is in the Bible. This is inspired scripture. The Holy Spirit of the living God inspired this to be written and made sure that it was here in our Bibles. Now, if you're a little bit surprised at the frankness of this language, it could be because there is some confusion about 
the goodness of desire and how our passions and desires should play out in our lives. And so let me just kind of put this in perspective by suggesting some different perspectives on sensual desire. Of course, there's the world's perspective expressed, quite frankly, by a lot of the love songs that we hear on, on the radio. And the world's perspective is basically this. Desire is the ultimate good and it is always to be fulfilled. Sexual desire, sensual desire in particular, this this is our highest aspiration, the world would tell us, that there is nothing better than to be in a romantic relationship that fulfills all of your dreams. There is nothing to be pursued more so than a sexually fulfilled life. This is what our culture tells us. It's this idea not that God is love, as the scriptures tell us, but it's more that love is God. That love is the supreme virtue and the thing that we should pursue at all costs. That's what the world tells us and often through the songs that we hear. But there's an opposite to that. Another extreme would be the view that we see in some religious traditions, not, not all, but in particular in some very conservative and strict religious traditions, which would say this, that desire is actually mostly bad and almost always to be denied. It's the opposite extreme. It's like these, these feelings that we have must be somehow wrong. There's a view in some parts of the church that, that sex in itself is a dirty thing. It's an unspiritual thing. It's a, it's a bad thing. Uh, there's a guy named Origen, one of the very early church fathers, who is said to have castrated himself because he was so suspicious of the desires that he was feeling. And so he felt like the best way to get rid of that desire was to get rid of certain parts of his body. But there's another view of desire, and it's what I'm calling the biblical Christian view, the Bible's view of desire, is this, that desire is basically good as long as it is fulfilled according to God's directions. The desires we have, and in particular, again, sensual desires are in themselves good. God created us not as souls apart from our bodies. He created us as embodied souls. He made us physical beings. He created Adam and Eve, and before the fall, he declared them very good. And Adam and Eve also had sensual desires. God created us with emotions and hormones and with certain body parts that were meant to be used in a sexual way. That's the way God created us. It was his idea. And God said that it's very good. Sex was given to the human race as a gift to be used properly, not to be exercised on every occasion and whenever a desire happens to flare up, but not to be denied and swept under the carpet and ignored as a reality. The attraction that men and women feel for each other, as far as that goes, is a good and healthy thing. And that's what we're seeing here in the Song of Solomon. I mean, again, I'm not able to read the whole book here, but if you continue to read it, and there are portions that are a lot more explicit than what I just read, and so I think I know one thing you'll be doing this afternoon is reading your Bibles. Chapter 7, I'll just recommend that, chapter 7. 
This is, this is God's word to us, and we just can't ignore it. The desire, the sensuality is so clear. So let me just say two things before we go to the next point. Um, the first thing is this, and that is that physical attraction between a man and a woman is, is a good thing. It, it's a good thing. It's not to be downplayed or dismissed. I mean, there are some times when I talk to single people who are Christians, and they might meet another Christian, but they have no attraction to that person at all, but they think maybe God wants me to marry this person because he's a good Christian, <laughs> or she's a good Christian. Now, certainly, a person, I mean, you, if you're a Christian, you should not marry a person who's not a Christian. And a person's spiritual convictions are very important. And physical attraction is not the most important thing. That, that's all true. But it's not unimportant. And so sometimes I tell single people, look, I mean, you might have a connection spiritually, and the person might be a very godly person, and that's good, but if you have no attraction to that person at all, you don't need to feel obligated to marry that person. Physical attraction is a good thing, and it should be present between a husband and a wife. So that, that's one thing that I'll say about this. The second thing is this. I want you to notice that the orientation that is presented to us here is a heterosexual orientation. Now, I, I know I hit on this from time to time, but you know it's so prevalent in our culture, it, it needs to be addressed in this day and age. That this does not have in mind homosexual desire. Um, there are some arguments cases that are being made today that, that would say this, and even in some conservative pockets of the church where they'll say, well, we know that homosexual activity is wrong, but maybe homosexual desire is not wrong. Maybe it's not wrong for a man to be romantically attracted to a man because they're not acting on anything, so it's okay. Just like it's not wrong for a man, a heterosexual man, to be attracted to a woman who's not his wife, I mean, if he lusts for that woman, that's a different thing. But for a man to look at a woman, not his wife, and say she's a pretty woman, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And so some will argue, well, if a man is attracted to a man, there's nothing wrong with that. But the, the Song of Solomon and the Scriptures would dispute that view. Heterosexual attraction, physical attraction, is, is natural and good based on the way God has made us. But homosexual attraction is unnatural. Romans chapter 1 says, homosexual attraction is a dishonorable passion. It's not neutral. It's not morally neutral. It's not the same as heterosexual desire. It's different. And we can see that very clearly here in the Song of Solomon. This is a man and a woman, a man attracted to a woman, and a woman attracted to a man. Now, does that mean that those who struggle with homosexual desires are are lesser people? No. Does that mean that people with homosexual desires are somehow beneath the rest of us? Absolutely not. Does that mean that people with homosexual desires are all going to hell? No. No. But it does mean that there is a difference. Listen, friends, we, we are all, as Pastor Brian spoke to us a moment ago, we, we all are crooked right down to the pit of our hearts. All of us are. All of us 
are a fountain of various perverse and sinful desires and affections. Whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, we all have all kinds of stuff coming out of our heart. That's why every one of us is in so desperate need of a savior. All of us need Jesus, whether heterosexual or homosexual. Our problem is not basically a sex orientation, it's a sin orientation that we have inherited from Adam. So we're all the same in that way. But I don't think we can say that heterosexual desire is the same as homosexual desire. One is natural and one is not. So let's go on to the next point. Let's look at the power of praise. The power of praise. I missed a couple of quotes there, didn't I? Um, Let me just leave you here with John Murray. This is good. Sex desire is not wrong, John Murray says. Very famous Presbyterian theologian. To cast any aspersion on sex desire is to impugn the integrity of the creator and his creation. Furthermore, it is not wrong to desire to satisfy sex desire and impulse in the way that God has ordained. So I think that's just a very good summary of what the scriptures teach. The balance between these extremes of some religious traditions in the world. So the third thing, or excuse me, the second thing. The power of praise is very prevalent in this book. The power of praise. Again, there's this, there's this intimate conversation going on between him and her, he and she. And uh, it, it goes back and forth, and it's almost like these two are trying to outdo each other in giving praise. It's almost like it's, it's a game. And they just keep wanting to kind of one-up the other by outdoing them with another bit of praise. And you'll notice that it's in the presence of others. You'll see that, um, again, that refrain, <clears throat> that chorus from time to time, others. So we see this praise is being given in the presence of others. I think there's an interesting little application to be drawn from that. You know, one way to really bless your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, or wife is to praise that person in the presence of others. It's one thing to praise them privately. It's another to praise them publicly. And that's what we see here. The man and the woman praising each other in the presence of others. But let's just take a look at this in some detail. First of all, his praise for her. How does this man praise this woman? Well, we see that she seems to be, starting in verse 5, she seems to be insecure, this woman. Do you see this? I'm very dark, she says, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the currents of Solomon, do not gaze at me because... Because I am dark. So this is a dark-skinned woman. This isn't a a racial thing. This is the reason that she is dark-skinned, as verse 6 tells us. It's because the sun has looked upon me. This is a woman who spent a lot of time in the sun. She just has a really dark tan, basically. And we can see why she was out in the vineyards in verse 6. It's because my mother's sons, that is her brothers, were angry at her. And so they forced her to work out in the vineyards. So she was out working in the fields all day long and was out in the sun and turned dark. Now apparently in this culture that was not something that was highly valued. A woman with a fairer skin was regarded as more attractive. When we see differences in, in that today, I mean in American culture it seems like tan skin is valued. I mean we have tanning beds you know, where people can go to keep their skin tanned in the winter. Many of us like a tanned person. In China, when I was there, I noticed a lot of women in July carrying an umbrella 
to protect them from the sun because in China, the fairer or lighter skin is regarded as more attractive. And that would have been the case here in the Song of Solomon. So this woman is kind of insecure about this. Now she acknowledges that she's lovely, verse 5. She says, I I am lovely. I mean, apparently she acknowledges that she's uh, a beautiful woman, that she is attractive in some sense, but still insecure about the way she looks. Now this is certainly true to what we know today, right? I mean, a lot of women are insecure about their physical appearance. I mean, even women who are very attractive, even the most beautiful women, you talk to them and you find that often they have some insecurity, sensitivity about their appearance, and that's what's happening with this woman. So the man knows this, and so he speaks into this with praise, right? Verse 8, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women... And then he gives some directions following the tracks of the flock. They're kind of playing a cat and mouse game. He wants her to pursue her, and he's kind of telling her how to do that. But he's saying to her, you are most beautiful among women. In verse 15, uh, the same thing. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. You know, husbands, wives love to hear that. (laughs) You are beautiful. And this man praises her in this way. And he gets very specific as well. Verse 10, he doesn't just say you're beautiful. He says, I love your cheeks. (laughs) Your cheeks are lovely. I love your neck. Your neck with this string of jewels, the ornaments. So he sees her with uh, jewelry on and it enhances her beauty. And so he, he says it. He speaks it. Back to verse 15. Your eyes are like doves. So he's being descriptive in the way that he's describing this woman's eyes. Chapter 2, verse 2, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. A bramble is just like a real thorny, kind of ugly bush. And what he's saying is you're like a lily, like a little flower growing up out of this ugly bush. In other words, you are unlike anybody else. You are a rare find, is what he is saying. And then in verse 9, he says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, we don't want to exactly use all the language that we find here and how we try to compliment women. Guys, I wouldn't say, you look like a horse. You know, I, <laughs> I don't suggest that. But this is meant by this man to be A compliment. Uh, A mare among Pharaoh's chariots. That's a horse. I mean, a horse is a a beautiful creature, a strong, noble, shiny, gorgeous creature. And uh, that's what the man has in mind here. So his praise for her is, is generous. But how about her praise for him? She praises him as well. Verses 4 and 12 Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Verse 12, while the king was on his couch. You know, maybe referring to Solomon as king. Maybe just her just referring to her husband as king. Just as a term of endearment. Just a way of showing respect. You are the king. Uh, verse 16, she says the same thing to him that he said to her. You are beautiful. My beloved, truly delightful. You know, often we think of men as being more 
um, visually stimulated by the appearance of women, but let's not think that women are not stimulated by the visual appearance of men. That <laughs> uh, They are, and that's what we see here. This woman notices the beauty of her man. Verse 3 of chapter 2, we have another very specific bit of praise. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. Kind of similar to the lily and the bramble. When you're walking through a forest, you don't generally expect to see an apple tree there in the middle of the forest. Those are generally in an orchard somewhere. But what she is saying is going through the forest, a dark forest, suddenly there's this beautiful apple tree. Again, it's like you are a rare find. You are unlike any other tree in this forest. An apple tree. Um, later on, she goes on, verse 3, she sat in his shadow under the banner of his love. This is an expression of the safety that she feels with this man. She feels protected. She feels secure under this man's banner in his shadow. Verse 5, mention of raisins and apples. These were thought to increase sensual desire. And um, so th that's what she's referring to. And again, you will notice the explicit language here, and I'm, just, I'm not going to read it all, um, but it's, it's there, and uh, that's what the woman is noticing as she praises her man. So the application here is pretty simple. I mean, for those who are married or for those who are in a, a strong relationship, is you just cannot overestimate the value of praising the person that you're with. And being specific about it. Did you notice the specificity of these praises? I mean, this will go a long way in rejuvenating um, a troubled relationship. Uh, it will go a long way in perhaps increasing sensual desire as well to be using specific words toward one another. I mean, how is it that you're affirming and praising your spouse? Can, are you saying things to your spouse like, you know, I'm glad I'm married to you. I trust you. I respect you. I love being with you. You are my best friend. I love to go out in public with you because I like to show you off. If I had to do it all over again, I'd marry you again. Those are just creative, specific ways to praise your spouse. Relationships are different. Some people like a lot of praise. Some people maybe not as others. But this is the example that's set for us here in the Song of Solomon, the power of praise. I know all the married couples are feeling very guilty right now. I know. <laughs> Last thing, blessing of patience. The blessing of patience. So we see the sexual anticipation. It's very high here in this book. But as we get to the end, we see that restraint is encouraged. We see this in verse 7, chapter 2, the very last phrase there. It says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And this is repeated in chapter 3, verse 5, repeated in chapter 8, verse 4. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What it's saying is don't prematurely awaken 
these sensual desires. It was like, speaking of love songs, the Supremes and Phil Collins did that song, You Can't Hurry Love, right? Big, big hit. You can't hurry love. You'll just have to wait. And that's what this passage is saying. You can't force it ahead sooner than it should be. You have to wait for the right person. You have to wait for the person with the right convictions, one who shares your love for the gospel. And you have to wait for the right time to fulfill these sexual desires. And the right time is marriage. That's the context of the Song of Solomon. It's headed toward a marriage at the end of the book. That's the context of the whole scripture, that sexual intimacy is reserved for marriage. So, not going to be any surprise to you that cohabitation rates, number of men and women living together before marriage, has increased like 600% between 1977 and 2007. And quite frankly, it's common among professed Christians. But, you know, as we look for the scriptures to try to find out, I mean, what would say we shouldn't do that? I mean, I think chapter 2, verse 7 is a pretty strong um, case for that. Don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Well, if you want to know one way to stir up sensual desire before you ought to be having it, one good way to do that is to live together. But sexual intimacy is reserved for marriage. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. A guy named Andres Kostenberger says this, sexual abstinence prior to marriage and sexual faithfulness in marriage are the biblical expectations. And it is evident that the practice of the former, that is abstinence prior to marriage, constitutes the best preparation for the obedience of the latter, that is faithfulness in a biblical marriage. Now, you might say to yourself, well, I've already blown it. I've already had sex before I'm married. I've already had sex outside of marriage. Well, how do you respond to that? Here's what you do. You go to God and you confess that sin. And you say, Lord, I have not lived in accordance with what your word has said about sexuality. I acknowledge that that is sin. I have wronged you, and I ask for your forgiveness. And the promise of the scripture is that he will forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You look to Jesus who died on the cross and shed blood there for that sin. And then you receive it and you take it and you thank God and you rejoice. My sins are not held against me. And then you get up and you pledge yourself to purity between now and the time that you're married. That's what you do. The fact that you might have blown it doesn't mean you can't have a happy marriage. It doesn't mean that there isn't a strong romantic partner for you one day. It doesn't mean that. Go to the gospel, and then with the help of prayer and the help of the Holy Spirit, and with the help of your brothers and sisters here at New Life, pursue purity. It's not easy. It's not easy. But we want to help you. That's one of the values of being part of a community, is so that we can come alongside and assist you in that ever. There's blessing and patience and waiting for the right time. So let me conclude here by just addressing this question. Why is this Song of Song, Song of Solomon in the Bible? Why is it here? What, what is the overarching reason that it is here? It, is it so that you can perhaps 
have a sexually fulfilled life? Is it so that your romantic dreams might come true? Yeah, actually. I mean, that's part of the reason. I mean, we don't want to over-spiritualize the book. I mean, that is part of the point. But it's not the biggest point. Because in the Bible, marriage is always intended to point to something much greater. Marriage between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, is always a picture of the marriage between Jesus and his church. That's the meaning of marriage. Marriages are walking, talking metaphors for the gospel. And Ephesians 5 makes that very clear. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Do you see that? Marriage is compared to Jesus' love for the church. He gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The idea here is that the passion that the husband in the Song of Solomon has for his bride is just a faint reflection, quite frankly, of the passion that Jesus has for his bride, which is us, the church. Jesus' love for us reflected in the love of a husband and a wife so much that passion drove him so much that he laid down his life, died for his bride. There's another songwriter, maybe you haven't heard, his name is Nick Cave. And he commented on the number of love songs that there are. He said, yeah, there's many kinds of love songs in, in many different kinds of forms. But here's the thing about all love songs. He says, they all ultimately address God. Nick Cave, I don't think he's a Christian. But that's what he said. He said all love songs, all that this longing that we have for connection with someone is just a reflection of the longing we all have to connect with our creator. It's a longing to be known perfectly by someone. It's a longing to be the recipient of a faithful love, of an intimate love, of a, of a pure love, of a love that won't hold our faults against us. We want to be recipients of a love that will never end. Death won't take it away. Divorce won't take it away. It's a love that began from before the foundation of the world and will never end. It's a love that gets better day after day, year after year, and for all eternity. That's the kind of love you want. And that's the kind of love that is available to you in the gospel. An amazing love of Jesus for his bride. And that's the bigger meaning of the song Solomon. May our marriages reflect that. May we submit our desires to the Lordship of Christ that our relationships would reflect well this amazing love of the gospel. We're going to